Well, it was uh, one year ago on Sunday that Josh and I met for the very first time. Uh, it was a wisdom and truth uh, gathering to talk about the school after church, and uh, I walked up to the front to, to meet some guys that I had previously met at church, and Josh was standing there with them, and, and this, these guys said, well, hey, so you're, you're coming to plan a church here. Is that still happening? And Josh says, what? You're that church planting guy? Email me everything. Email me everything. So it was on Super Bowl Sunday, and I went home, and during the Super Bowl, I typed out this long email to Josh, and then uh, we met on Valentine's Day at his house uh, with his family, and, and, uh, and here we are today, a year later. Uh, I am, it's just kind of amazing. It's kind of, uh, my head kind of spins when I think about what God has done in such a little amount of time, and, and yet it's, 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 I think my head spins because it's significant. I go, wow, and he did this. And so uh, today, uh, I'm thinking about that as we jump into this passage. So Paul uh, is continuing his letter to the Galatians. We're, we're picking up uh, in chapter 5, verses 7 through 14, and Josh has read it for us. Uh, and so I'm just going to jump right into kind of an exposition of the text. And exposition is is this fancy word that pastors use, which means we just give an explanation of the text. But we like exposition. So uh, it sounds uh, far more technical than it actually is. But what it is is an explanation. So let's, let's jump into this explanation. The first verse that he uses there, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, are they running no, this is not to be taken literally here, right? This, again, is as I preached last time about the, the analogy that, that Paul used about the slave woman and the free woman, uh, he's not speaking literally. He's speaking figuratively. And what does he mean by you were running? He means you were progressing, you were doing better, you were, you were advancing, right? And then he says, who hindered you? Who caused you to stop? Who prevented you from obeying the truth? And it reminds me, I'm flipping here in my Bible, it reminds me of, and I don't have this in my notes, but it does remind me of, of Hebrews chapter 12, doesn't it? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this is verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Now, we don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews, but come on now. That's really similar. You were running, you were progressing, and someone got in your way. Someone put a weight on you, and it slowed you down. Or even more, it stopped you from obeying the truth. Paul is <clears throat> still struggling, as he has been this whole chapter, with feelings of being perplexed. He's, he's shocked. He's confused by the Galatians' response, okay, that by their actions, that they're following after these people who have come into the church and troubled them by laying the heavy burdens of, of Jewish tradition upon them. He says in the next verse, he says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
Okay, so when I first jumped into this passage, I was like, well, it's short. This will be a short sermon. And then I thought about it. I was like, well, what's really here? It's just kind of, you know, you were running and now you've stopped. And, and, and there's some things about the offense of the cross. Maybe that's where I'm going to camp out on offense of the cross. But what happened was I got to this, this kind of confusing first verse here. He's using a, he's not speaking literally, you're running, now you're hindered, uh, and there's a persuasion, that's the thing that's hindering you. It's not from God, that's what he's saying, it's not from God. And then he makes this comment, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Where did that come from, okay? And so that's where I camped out, because <laughs> I went, what is he talking about here? Why is he now using this picture of what's happening them as it's like a baking picture, okay? And I'm, I'm going to admit right now and right here that I'm wading into territory that I, have not, I know nothing about, okay? <laughs> Melissa and, and Hannah and, and Sarah, who makes all the goodies in the back, you guys probably know way more about baking than I do. But Paul starts to talk about leaven, right? And I'm like, what? What is this? Now, I'll confess also that as I've read this before, when I get to the word leaven, I think about yeast, right? Remember, Jesus said the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees, and he starts talking about that. So in my mind, that's all it was. And then I did a deep dive into it. We're going to do a deep dive into what leaven is this morning. In the Hebrew, the word for leaven is chametz. So what is chametz? What is leaven if it's not just yeast? It actually means more than just that. And I'll give you this definition. Leaven or chametz is any substance that produces fermentation when added to dough. It affects all kinds of grains like wheat, oats, rye, barley, spelt. Chametz Chametz also, I have to remember to get the phlegm going to actually pronounce that correctly. Chametz also uh, has this meaning or, or related meaning of sour. So you can see how it, it kind of moves towards that idea of fermentation, this process and, and, uh, that causes rising, that causes leavening. All right? Now, this is where I wade into unfamiliar territory, okay? So... Afterwards, I, I, I will receive correction from those bakers. Um, the, the early Hebrews apparently depended on a piece of leaven dough for transmission of the leaven. Okay, so they would, it's kind of like the, the starter, you know, in sourdough, right? You kind of get, hold on to that, and it's already got the leaven in it, and you kind of just bump it into the, you know, the new loaf, and it, so it transmits, right? I don't know, okay, right? okay. Okay, so this is how Hebrew people determined if grain was leavened. Once the flour or the grain came in contact with water, with moisture, they gave it 18 minutes, okay? I don't know how they came up with 18 minutes, but 18 minutes uh, was, was the time that they had to get it into a stove, into an oven to start firing it because then it would cease the leavening process. All right, so 18 minutes they have because even the yeast that's in, in the air would get into the grain and start to make it rise, okay? So chametz um, 
is this fermenting process. Um, and I was partially correct in the initial understanding that there are leavening agents. You could use a, a starter or you could use uh, yeast to, to start the process, okay? Now, this, this leavening was important for the Hebrews. And so I'm going to go back into the Old Testament and look at two different uh, main uh, places where leavening is important, okay? The first one is in Leviticus, and we just finished reading Leviticus, right? Woohoo! We have finished reading Leviticus. I, I, I celebrate. In fact, I stopped reading, so I, I have a lot to catch up today on our catch-up day. Um, so the first one is in Leviticus 2, verse 11. And, and this is what is the instruction that's given to the Israelites. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as food offering to the Lord. Okay? We also find this in Exodus 23:18. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. All right? So it's it's possible well let me, let me just say this. When I read through Leviticus, I, I get a couple of understandings. One is that God is not like us, right? We cannot just waltz into his presence uh, there, there and expect to live, right? He is so vastly different from us that we cannot enter in without a sacrifice. The other thing is that, um, well, I, because of that, because of that one little thing, I'll get to the other thing later. Because of that thing, it's possible that fermentation implies some type of disintegration or corruption, and it, it, therefore it's excluded from all offerings placed on the altar to be sacrificed to God. So for us, leaven, hey, I kind of like leaven. I like fluffy bread, right? But God, different from us, says, no, don't bring that before me, okay? We have to note, though, that... that leavening or leavened bread and honey were acceptable in the fellowship offerings, not the burn offerings. Uh, these were given to the priests. Again, so you see the distinction, right? God says no. For people, yeah, that's, that's okay. The second thing that I want us to look at from the Old Testament is during the Passover, the people were commanded uh, in Exodus 12, 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove it out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day to the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, this is given that they would not forget that they were delivered from Egypt, that it happened quickly. And when God commanded them to go, they didn't have time to prepare their bread. They didn't have time for it to rise. And the people were forced to carry their kneading troughs and the dough, which with they, which with they baked unleavened cakes to sustain them on the journey. We see this in Exodus 12, 34 and 39. I'm just going to read that for you because I think it's important. Exodus 34, uh, 12, 34. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added, and they carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs, wrapped in clothing. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they were driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. 
Deuteronomy 16, 13, do not eat it. Uh, do not eat it with bread made with yeast. But for seven days, eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may be remembered, you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Okay, so why am I going into telling you this about leaven, right? Because I want to bring those two things together and be simplistic. The Old Testament showed leaven not acceptable to God. The whole book of Leviticus tells us that God is so vastly different from us, again, like I said, in His holiness that we can't approach Him without atonement, without some kind of sacrifice, and without consecration, without us being set apart. The other important element is a memorial to remember Egypt, a deliverance from slavery which had a sudden transition in which they had to leave a bunch of stuff behind. Now, I just moved Carmen from California, and we left a bunch of stuff behind. Probably you've moved from a place, and regardless of whether you've realized it or not, you've got to the new place, and you were like, wait a second, oh, I bet we left that wherever you moved from, right? And that's what they were to remember. They were to remember that quick departure, that God delivered them quickly and suddenly. Now, because of these two uh, things in the Old Testament, uh, chametz, or leaven, started to represent corruption. Even Plutarch, who was a Greek pagan philosopher, he wrote this, Now leaven is, is itself the offspring of corruption and corrupts the mass of dough with which it has been mixed. Okay, so everybody kind of got this, this idea that it was a negative thing. Paul is later going to use the same concept with the Corinthian church in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says it again, the same thing. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So with that understanding, what about leaven is Paul describing? He is saying that this persuasion that has hindered their progress, the progress of the Galatians, is, is spreading. And if, if, if you're not obeying the truth, what are you doing? You're disobeying the truth. So this is definitely, this corruption that is mixing in there is definitely and clearly wicked. And it's working its way through the whole church. Paul is implying that once the corruption begins, you can't save the loaf. Think about it. Can you cut off the portion after it starts to rise? Or is it already done? Is it already been infected? Has it already been corrupted and the leavening agent has started the process of fermentation? And so my question is, if, if that is what he's describing, is there any hope for the Galatian church? if it has already started to spread. Now, before we go, wah, wah, and feel down about it, I'm going to take you back two weeks to what I talked about. Talk about the, the slave woman and the free woman. Remember, he, at the end, he says, cast out the slave woman and her son. But what I tried to point out very clearly was that the, the free woman and her son never are cast out. Never are cast out. So, so Paul is saying, saying this, 
this leaven has started to spread among your whole church. And what is its purpose? What is its purpose? Is it to cast them out? Is it to throw them away? Absolutely not. Because he says, the persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But what do you say before that? Who hindered you? It is hindering them from obeying the truth. That is what leaven, in this case, is doing. Let me find myself, myself again. We're moving on to verse 10. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So Paul here is saying, I'm, you are being persuaded, but I'm also persuaded. You're persuaded to, to, to stop, to disobey the truth. I am persuaded in the Lord. I'm persuaded in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. Something different is at work in Paul than is at work in the Galatians. Now he says, I have confidence. This Greek word uh, is used twice in this passage. It's used right here and it's used before. And I'm going to show you which one it was before. Because it's significant that there's, he repeats himself. He repeats this word, and the word is patheo. In the earlier, he says, he says, who hindered you from obeying, patheo, the truth. And here he says, I have patheo in the Lord. Okay? Now, he's using two different uses, obeying, and the second one is being convinced. What do these two words have in common? Now, you can use them both in different words to mean obeying and mean having confidence. But what, what, think about, what, how do these two have a common theme? And I would say the common theme within that is believing or trusting. If you're believing and trusting, you're going to obey that thing. You're going to follow that thing because you know it's true and you know it's right. If you have confidence on something, you have confidence because you're believing and you're trusting in that thing, Right? So I, I've gone back and I, I would say, who hindered you from trusting the truth? Who hindered you from believing the truth? But guess what, Galatians? I am believing in the Lord. I'm believing in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, this is very similar. When you put it that way, it's similar to what he says to the Philippians. Remember, he says, and I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. Or it's even if we go to the Hebrews. Huh, Paul and the Hebrews are really kind of similar today. I, just a thought, think about it. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Even though we're concerned about these things and you were, we're cons- we, we believe and we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That's Hebrews 6, 9. And remember what he told the Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 8, when he brought up the whole thing of the lump, he repeated this, this phrase. He said, your boasting is no good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then he continues with an instruction. So if a little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. See what he says? Cleanse out the leaven 
so that you may be a new lump because you really are unleavened. You already are unleavened. Get rid of this leaven. He continues, he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is calling them back to obedience, to believing the truth. Now, I want you to see something else interesting about leaven. Yes, we're still talking about leaven. It's not always an example of evil and corruption. Jesus says in Matthew 13, 33, telling a parable, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom of God is like leaven. So if you look at the New Testament understanding of what leaven is, it's a little different from the Old Testament where it's just corruption. The understanding in the New Testament kind of leaves, uh, uh, the, the New Testament points, I'm sorry, points to the power of a leavening agent, both for good or for evil. Its power is to infect and spread through the entire body. Okay, so remember that. Remember that, okay? Now, you may be asking yourself as we talk about leaven, I'm thinking about communion because we, you know, Passover meal and then we, we do this together. And you might be asking questions like, well, I wonder if that cracker is leavened. What about wine? Wine is fermented, right? How is that good? Maybe we should be using grape juice because in Jesus' day, that's what they called wine because it wasn't fermented, right? Or you might be thinking, didn't Jesus say something about drinking his blood and eating his flesh in John 6? And Leviticus says we shouldn't drink blood. I mean, all these things like start coming into my mind as we talk about leaven, and I think about how we still apply that today, right, in communion. And I'm not saying you shouldn't think about these things. You probably should. And you should ask these questions, though throughout history, I want to point out that people have been arguing and picking apart how we do communion and missing the why we do communion. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, because it points to Christ, right? It points to Christ, the only acceptable sacrifice for us without corruption. See, the thing, see, for us, it was okay. In fact, we're, we eat leaven, we eat it all the time, but, but God said, don't bring that before me. Don't bring it before me. I think that this, this, it starts to unfold, it starts to unpack when, when we think about what he says next in the offense of the cross. He says, but if brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. It, he says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I persecuted? All right, And he is being persecuted, so therefore he is not preaching circumcision, right? If he, he's saying, if I could preach circumcision without persecution, then clearly something has changed. Something is different. The, the cross must have lost its offense. If I could do it 
without causing you to be offended, then something would have had to have changed. But I'm not preaching circumcision. So what is the offense of the cross? Some think that the offense is that the cross reveals our sin, which it does. And when we see the, cro- the cost of our redemption hanging there, we suddenly know that we have offended a holy God because we see the cost. We see what it costs us, what it costs God. And we know that there has been something that's required that great sacrifice. So when men are aware of that, they become aware of their own sin, they try and hide it. They try and cover it up. They make excuses for it or minimize their depravity and their wickedness, right? Some churches also believe that this is something we should do. We should, uh, we believe, they believe sin is, is offensive to people and offensive to our culture, so, so they decide to stop talking about it. Or even more, or even worse, they exonerate it. They say, it's not so bad. They actually speak for God and claim you know what, God's all right with it. But that actually isn't the offense of the cross. It is offensive, but that's not why men hate it. Men hate the cross because when they look upon it, they see Jesus hanging upon it. In anguish, they see him bleeding, they see him dying, and it says to them, this is the only way There is no other way to to be right with God. He won't accept it. And you must humble yourself. You must receive this gift by faith alone and not by the work of your hands. You might say that, that some of you might say, well, I think that's great news. That's the best news ever. Well, you say that only because the Holy Spirit has given you eyes to understand that. For the rest of humanity, those dead in their sin, lost in their transgressions, they scream, no, no, I will not. If salvation means that I must humble myself before him, I don't want any part of that. I'll do it myself. This is the persuasion that infects. This is what corrupts, and it even corrupts the redeemed. Not to cast us out, not that we lose our salvation, but we become disobedient to the truth. And just a little bit of it begins to creep in. It just begins to creep into our lives. It begins to creep into the church and it spreads throughout this idea of works righteousness that somehow I can earn my worth with God, that I want to feel good about my own accomplishments before men and feeling like I'm doing it for God. Yeah, with his help, but mostly my help, right? And though we are told, he tells us himself that they are filthy rags, we think that they'll count for something. Man is offended by God's plan, so he brings to God a plan that offends God's holiness. Let me say that again. Man is offended by the cross, by God's plan. So what does he do? He brings a plan to God that offends God's holiness. That somehow I, could, I would be proudly enough to bring a sacrifice full of corruption before his holy throne. Think about Isaiah 6. 
as Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God. And he says, he says he fell before the throne and he, was, he said, I'm undone. I'm about to become nothing, vaporized. And there's these angels, these seraphs that are singing, singing holy, holy, holy. And smoke fills the temple and the train of his robe. And the, the, the very foundations are shaking. That's the picture. And that's where we bring our works following the footsteps of Cain and hating our brother Abel for, for the offering, the only acceptable sacrifice that Abel brought. We, like Cain, bring our own stuff. There's only one acceptable sacrifice, and that is the one made on the cross. Think about it. We just finished Leviticus. Think about all of those sacrifices that you read about. Over and over and over. Some of this seems so repetitive, right? And the detail that's there. Over and over and over. Think about all through the, the history of, of Israel. How many bulls and goats, lambs were sacrificed. And Jesus comes along and his sacrifice, one, covers them all. Every peace offering, every burnt offering, every sin offering, every fellowship offering, every offering for a new day or, or, or a new moon or this festival or that festival, it is all done with Christ. That was the second thing that I saw in Leviticus. Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice. And he, he wraps up he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Josh is smiling here. He was waiting for me to get to this part. <laughs> emasculate means to castrate. It's the removal of the male sexual organ or part. Now, I could let my semi-dormant junior high mentality kick in here. And with, with great relish, I could think about what a great comeback this is to those who promote circumcision. But I will restrain myself this morning. Uh, literally, in the Greek, although when you read the passage, it said mutilate. Mine says emasculate. But in the Greek, it says literally, it means to cut off. I wish those who unsettle you would cut themselves off. Now think about this. This is exactly what happens in the Old Testament when someone violated the covenant. How ironic is this? I, you can't, don't miss this. Don't miss this, how ironic this is. Because in trying to keep the Old Covenant, they are violating the New Covenant. And the penalty is being removed from their own people. Remember, at the very beginning... Paul's confidence is that they would see things his way and that those who troubled them, what does it say? Those who are troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever that is. And the penalty is they are cast out. They are cut off from God's people. Remember two weeks ago with the slave woman and the free woman, he said cast the slave woman and her son out, referring to those troublers, 
Cast them out. They're not like you. They, they have no share in the inheritance. They never will. Cast them out. And he says today, cast them out because they've cast themselves out. Again, you might think this is harsh, but this letter to the Galatians is not one where Paul cares to offend the troublers of the Galatians. Remember, he, in the very first chapter, he said they're eternally condemned as those who have taught a gospel different from the ones that Paul received directly from God. But Paul does care about the Galatians, and he is defending, vigorously defending, their sonship in Christ. That's a sermon with a lot of yeast and leaven and baking in it. It's the first one that I've preached, a baking sermon. And as I move in, into a time of application, we've given a lot of explanation about this text and moved through it slowly. I, I'm, I'm thinking, what, what, where I get to is I get to a point where I'm thinking about leaven and, and, and leaven being corruption or leaven being something like the kingdom of God. And I'm thinking, what am I allowing to leaven my lump? I mean, my life. And how would I even know? It's so small. How would I even know if it's in my life? Corruption and persuasion starts as an innocuous thought or a whisper, and it rises to become a loud, controlling, firmly embedded ideology and philosophy. That's what it does. That's the point of this sermon. And you know that that's true. You know it's true, and yet we make excuses for it all the time. A little bit won't hurt. I, I think also about how, how do I live believing and obeying the truth? How do I do that when it seems like this corruption is in the air? Paul is actually setting up his explanation of living by the Spirit instead of living by the flesh. He's, he's going to go into this, this in a couple of weeks, he's going to talk about how do sons of God live. And this week, he's, pre he's presenting the fact that the fight starts in our minds. And Paul, I believe, is, as, as he preaches in Romans 12 to I think he's trying to renew the minds of the Galatians in this portion of the letter. And it's an encouragement to us and to the Galatians to wage war in, in what, what and where we allow our minds to, to dwell, what we allow our minds to consume. And there are so many voices that are speaking to us, so many persuasions it comes through the music that we listen to. It comes through TV. It comes through social media. It comes through YouTube. It comes through our friends and our coworkers. And there's so many voices that sometimes it's hard to think. It's hard to know what is the truth. I mean, going through this last year politically, I don't know what to think. I don't know what's true. But here's one thing that I'm learning as we study Galatians. And I hope that you, as we've gone through the study of Galatians, are, are beginning to kind of 
crystallize in your mind certain takeaways, certain things that you're going, this was good because now I'm thinking about this. Uh, or this is something that I learned by us studying through Galatians. And here's, here's one of mine. I'm realizing how easily it is even for, for it's easy, easy for me to drift from the truth of who I am in Christ, that I am a son of God. And I act like a son of the devil sometimes, or I think like one, but that's not who I am. And I'm so grateful for passages like Psalm 139, 23 and 24. And I read it, I read you all of one, Psalm 139 a couple, uh, probably four weeks ago, but I'm still there. And what a treasure it is to have scripture like this. How useful it is for me in my life to pray this to the Lord over and over because I realize how much I need God's help in this area. And this is the prayer. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I believe that's the only true response to this passage. We don't know what is affecting us. The Galatians had, they were troubled. They were troubled, but they didn't know exactly. Paul had to come in and reveal it to them. And we as Christians, sons of God, have God's spirit indwelling in us. And our heart should ever be, search me, O God. Search me, O God, look inside of me, see what I've let in and what is persuading me to disobey the truth and let me walk in the way everlasting because that's what sons do. So let's pray that prayer together as I close. Father, we come before you. Some of us, many of us, sons and daughters of, of, of God, by faith, we've come to Christ, and Lord, we are no longer slaves. We no longer fear being cast out, Father, but we do fear and we are concerned, Lord, that we would walk in the truth, that we would run, Father, obeying the truth in your everlasting ways. And we realize, Father, that there are things that hinder us, and Lord, more than anything, more that we... <laughs> More than anything, we need you. We need your help. We need you to come and reveal those things, that corruption, Lord, that is, that is trying to persuade us, trying to slow us down, Father, because we want to run with all that we have. Lord, would you help us? Would you give us eyes to see? Would your Holy Spirit bring conviction into our life? Maybe, Father, we are making excuses for avenues that we're, we're just letting it in. Forgive us for that, Father. And lead us into a better way. Lord, we need you, our great, great and good Father, to help us, your children, as we, learn, as we yearn to honor you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.